Hi, everybody, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. My dad and I got to interview Jack Canfield recently. Jack Canfield is best known for his Chicken Soup for the Soul books, as well as his book about how to be successful in your life called The Success Principles. Both of them have been translated into something like 41 languages, super successful. He's been on Oprah and pretty much every other TV show you know. And now he's on Invested. So please enjoy part one of our interview with Jack Canfield. Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested podcast where we're working on how to invest like the greatest investors in the world. And we have a very strong opinion about that. We do. We think that's Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and, and people who have learned from these people about how to do what is often called value investing, but which neither of those guys wants to call value investing. Really? Yeah. They don't like that term. What do they call it? Um, they don't call it anything, really. I mean, once in a while, you'll hear them call it value investing, but it really what they're looking to do is just buy really good companies when they're really inexpensive, and that's a relative term. Value investing is often thought to mean you just buy really cheap companies. Hmm. Forget about the, the good part, right? <laughs> which could be a problem. And... To solve this for us today, to help figure some of this stuff out, we have one of the world's expert coaches, often considered to be America's number one coach on success. Um, and we're really, really pleased you're here, Jack. Welcome, Jack Canfield, to the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're, we're thrilled that you're here because you have a, a breadth of knowledge from you know, so, many, so many years of reading, so many years of studying, so many years of talking with the best uh, minds in the world. And we're going to dive in on a subject. I don't know if I hear you talk about it all that much. The, the whole money subject. Mm -hmm. I know you do, you do speak a lot about it actually, but right. So, but the breadth of your knowledge, I think is so important to what we're trying to talk about on this podcast. And we promised everyone last time that we would talk about how to break through the boundaries in your life, the fears in your life and how that is keeping you from learning to invest on your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have, we have an idea that, that at least in my own experience of investing, that it's pretty much a head game. Like how are you thinking about things? How do you think about yourself? How do you think about money? How do you think about fear? And all of the different possibilities that can come through your head are maybe 80%, maybe even more of the process of being a great successful investor in the style that we follow and the strategy we follow because you have to go against the group. Mm-hmm. You can't go where everybody's going because if you do that, you'll get what everybody's getting, which is standard average rates of return in the market. Right. And if you want to do that, you don't have to do investing. You can just buy the SPY mm -hmm. and you're good. You got the market. But to do high rates of return with low risk, you have to be willing to go against what other people are thinking. And that can be extremely difficult. It's an emotional decision. You can feel fear. You're not sure about yourself. All of those things kick in in a huge way for everybody who's listening to this podcast. Right. So I'd love to talk about any of that stuff. Let's do today. it. Way to, way to tee it up, Jack. <laughs> so what I want to know about from Jack is how do you ask for what you want? You told me about this quote, Dad, that you had from John Gray. Okay, here's what John says. One of the greatest lessons you'll ever learn is how to ask for what you want. And I'm just thinking, is there some, like if I'm asking to be more wealthy, what's, what's the right way to ask? Well, John obviously is a relations expert. I think by that quote, he was primarily referring to asking other people 
like asking your wife to oh, like you directly know, asking directly asking but but I say that asking occurs on two levels there's a horizontal level which is human to human and then there is the vertical level which is human to higher power God infinite intelligence source energy whatever you want to call it and there's also asking your own subconscious uh, for inner wisdom so there's mm-hmm. all of that is, is going on at the same time so let's talk about each of those I think you know, when I got into this world of money, I was pretty much a, a started out as a hippie in the '60s, and I was like against the the establishment, you know. And uh, my father had been kind of messed over by a big corporation, so he was kind of anti, you know, corporations. And it was W. Clement Stone who was worth six hundred million dollars, who'd started his own insurance company with a ten thousand dollar investment. He is a, he was a publisher of Success Magazine. He had written a book with Napoleon Hill, who wrote Think and Grow Rich. So he was really into that, and he taught me success is not a four letter word. Wealthy is not a four-letter word. It's what you can do more good. Bob Proctor likes to say, you know, if you if you don't have any money, the good you can do is limited to where you are. If you have money, you can build schools in Africa. You can help the hurricane victims in Puerto Rico. You can do all kinds of things mm-hmm. you can't do. So I switched my gears on all that, and so I directly asked him, you know, how did you get wealthy? And and he wanted to share that, and and he was very good at sharing that in terms of, um, and he was really focusing on the mental game, which I know you want to talk a little bit about today as well. Um, obviously, you have to invest, you have to have a product that you can sell for a profit, you you know all of those kind of things, but but critically, what he was teaching me was the mental aspect that you have to ask by ha- by setting a goal. By asking, you know, if I set a goal to be a millionaire, to be a multimillionaire, to be independently wealthy, and, w- and you have to put a figure with that, how much you have to do the research. What would it take to be independently wealthy? For me, it's having thirty million dollars, producing a minimum of six percent, which would produce one point eight million dollars in income after taxes. That pays for my extravagant lifestyle. That's so, so specific. Well, here's do you the thing. Recommend thi- that people. Be yes, that I do. Specific? Yes, I do. If 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 you call me up and I'm a travel agent and, and Phil says uh, I want to go on vacation. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> but my question is going to be, where do you want to go? When do you want to go there? How long do you want to stay? And what's it, how much are you willing to spend? And once I know that, I can help you get to where you want to go. And so a lot of times people say, I want to be... I want to be rich. Well, what's rich? Rich to someone living in an A-frame in, in New Hampshire might be, you know, 100000 a year. Rich to someone living in San Francisco these days would be, you got to be making a million dollars to live inside the city limits Absolutely. or you're, you're in trouble, you know. Right. So the reality is to be very, very specific. So once you decide what you want, you know, I want to live on the ocean. Well, which ocean? Uh, what kind of house? How big? Um, how many square feet, how many dollars you willing to spend, you know, that kind of thing. And get really clear. People say, I want to I wanna own a yacht. Great. Do you ever find out what a yacht costs? No. Do you know what a slip costs? No. Do you know what the maintenance on a yacht costs? No. Uh, what, what does it cost for the fuel? And, you know, blah, 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 blah. So you need to do your research to find out what is the lifestyle I want to live going to cost me. That's why financial planners are, what's your retirement going to cost? Most people have no idea. And so it's very important to be specific when you're talking to a higher power, when you're talking to your subconscious mind, and when you're talking to people. If I, I, one of the demonstrations I do in my seminars, I say, who in here would like more money? <laughs> Everyone raises their hand. I walk over and I hand a guy a dollar. And I say, great, you got more money. You happy? He goes, no. So why not? Well, it's not, I want more. Well, how would I know? 
In other words, you got to tell me how much more you want before I can actually either give it to you or tell you I'm not yes. going to play. And so you've got to be very specific in what that means to you. Like, what is the outcome you want from investing? You know, is it is it power? Is it money? Is it freedom? Is it the ability to build schools in Africa? What is it you're looking for? Like, for me, I don't need a Bentley or a Rolls-Royce. To me, I'd be nervous driving it. Someone lent me their Rolls-Royce once, and then they told me what it cost just to wash it. <laughs> And I was like driving around the street and there's little trees sticking out of so far and I scratched the side of it, you know. Um, so I have a Lexus. It's a very nice car and I'm very happy with it. But that's I know that's what I want and so I can be very clear about that. Um, what I want money for is the freedom to do what I want to do. And I figured out what, what that costs to, to maintain that. So being willing to ask other people to mentor you, to coach you, to be your financial advisor, to join a mastermind group where you can work together to study uh, you know, financial investing and so forth. Um, those kind of asks are valuable. And then if you're in business, you've got to ask people to buy your product, to hire you as a consultant. And there are a lot of people out there who are afraid of rejection. And let me just say one thing about rejection. If I ask you to have dinner with me tonight and you say no, I didn't have anyone to eat dinner with before I asked you. I don't have anyone to eat dinner with after I asked you. My life did not get worse. <laughs> it only gets worse when I go in and talk to myself and say things like, my mother was right. I'll never <laughs> amount to anything. I chew with my mouth open, my elbow's on the table. No one will ever love me. I'm the slug of the universe. I think I'll go home and die. You know, That's where the pain comes, not the rejection. Wow. Chicken soup for the soul, which is what made me wealthy. You know, We've sold over half a billion books. That's, think about that. The average author sells you know, 100,000 books. They're really excited about that. Um, half a billion, 500 million books. And um, we had to ask 144 publishers to publish our book before the 145th one said yes. Hmm. So 144 rejections. Man. Now, if I'd stopped after 100, we would not be having this conversation today because we'd never met, you'd never heard of me. So the idea is you've got to ask, 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 ask. And, you know, I coined a term a number of years ago called become an asshole. You have to be willing to be persistent. You can ask the same person again, and you can ask a lot of people. Seven billion people on the planet, maybe eight. We don't know how many are really in China. And someone will say yes. And it's so true. We have a former Air Force Academy grad who, top gun pilot, flew for the Air Force, who bulled his way into our organization mm -hmm. and actually helped create the organization and just said, look, I want to teach this stuff with you. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't stop pestering me. I know. Wouldn't stop asking. Yeah. And finally, I just sort of gave up and said, okay, let's do it. Yeah. You know, so kudos to Earl Davis. But Well, um, two things with that. I, I, Mark Victor Hansen and I, my chicken soup cause, almost wrote a book once called Ask Like a Kid. Because kids ask you over and over, can I have a cookie? No. Come on, let me have a cookie. No, you're going to ruin your appetite. I, I promise I'll eat everything. Please give me a cookie. No, Mom, I'm dying. I'm going to die of starvation. You know, my, my blood sugar. All right, here, have a cookie. The guy that runs my foundation, Larry Price, I have a foundation for self-esteem. We do a lot of work. We've got 800,000 people off welfare in California with a program we developed called That's the Goals Program. Fantastic. And he came to me. I was running a, a conference where people come. It was for educators teaching them self-esteem. 650 people a year. Had a bunch of speakers come in. And after my second one, Larry came up and said, I, I, I want you to hire me. I said, I'm not hiring. He said, yeah, but you have this nonprofit. It's called the Foundation for Self-Esteem. I said, it's only for people. So it's only so I can keep the profits of this year's conference and use it to seed next year's conference to do the, the, the fundraising. He said, no, you don't hear me. I want to work for you. I said, you're not hearing me. I'm not hiring. We went back and forth like this. I swear I won't try to do it. The, the interview would be over for, for, for days. And finally, he said, 
what would it take for you to say yes? And I said, well, you'd have to go out and find your own salary because I don't have it. You know, we end up with maybe $25,000 left. And he was working as an architect for like, you know, 85000 a year, whenever it was back then, 21 years ago. And I said, if you can go get your salary raised, then I'll, I'll hire you because what do I have to lose? You're paid for. So he went out and got a grant with the L.A. County Office of Education for $750,000 to develop this program <laughs> that I just mentioned that got all these people up over. I said, okay, you're hired. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. But That's he wouldn't give amazing. up. Amazing. Yeah. In the investing practice context, so we called our, our my focus on investing, my trying mm-hmm. to learn this extremely difficult seeming process, my practice. I try to yes. do a little every day. Mm-hmm eventually get to the point where it becomes unconsciously available to me. And in this context of of thinking about asking for what you want, I would say it's it's to find the time to even do it in the first place, to carve out the time in your day, to have the focus to actually like focus on investing a little bit once a week or once a day or a few times a month. Well, let me jump in with an answer even before the questions, because I think it's real important. W. Clement Stone... And my first interview asked me three questions, one of which was, how much time do you watch television? And I said, I don't know. He said, that's an inadequate answer, son. I want you to think. I said, okay. He's, and I came up with three hours, Good Morning America, or a day show, something like that. I'd watch the news. I'd probably watch an hour of entertainment you know, late at night. And he said, I want you to cut out one hour a day. And I said, okay, why? He said, because... I call the television the income reduction box. That's what he called it. <laughs> he said, you're watching other people get wealthy while you're not. Hmm. And I thought, that's true. The actors are getting a lot Ooh, of money. And I'm sitting that's, there that's wasting my time. That's a right there. Yeah, I like now that. think yeah. about this. The average American, according to the latest research, watches three to six hours of television a day, depending on their age. If you watch three hours of television a day at the end of the year, we'll just round it out to 300 days a year, you've watched over 1,000 hours of television. Now, a thousand hours divided by a forty-hour work week would give you twenty-five weeks. Holy smokes, mm. half a year! That's 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 half a year of forty-hour work weeks that you could invest in Gosh. investing. So, if you just took one hour a day, and like a lot of people are sleeping in, we're mostly sleep-deprived in our culture, but some people are sleeping in too much. They're watching the news. They're watching sometimes two or three news. You can get on, and all of a sudden, you've watched three hours of news. You know, yeah, or ten minutes watched, of news in three hours. Yeah, or you yeah. watch you exactly repeat it over and over and over again. Uh, and you can watch a couple TV shows if you, you get addicted. Some people watch two and three series a night when they're binge watching a series like Game of Thrones or Ozark or mm-hmm. you know Mad Men or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the point is, one hour a day gives you 356 hours a year, 365 hours a year, divided again by 40-hour work, that's nine and a half weeks. So if you could take off two months from work and only study investing, you, you could learn a lot. Way. You Absolutely. could learn most everything. Everything you need to know, sure. probably. You know, yeah. As long as you're working with the right people, yep. reading the right books. You know, I want to I come back a little bit to, to this idea that, the, that there's something in the universe that moves in your direction. Yes. When I first got started, I ended up working closely with Dr. Jonas Salk. <clears throat> and he had a, he was often um, the recipient of awards at fundraisers where they would raise money for muscular dystrophy sure. and all kinds of diseases. And he made it a habit to have a little place card on everybody's seat that said this quote from Goethe or, or, or a Scottish mountain climber, depending on who you talk to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About, about how you have to you have a dream and what you have to be is committed to it right and in that commitment nature starts to move in your direction providence yes. moves in your yes. direction yes yes so 
Tell, tell us more about what is what's going on there. Well, I, I, I want to, I'm going to give you a metaphor I just read. It's not a metaphor; it's a scientific fact. I'm reading a book called *The Biology of Transcendence* by a guy named Dr. Joseph Chilton Pierce, who wrote *The Crack in the Cosmic Egg* years ago. One of the most conscious people that's ever lived. Research crazy. Reads thousands of research articles a year, and he was talking about lightning. How does lightning happen? And I was really interested because. I was on vacation with a bunch of my friends, including Dawa, who you know, and Stuart Emery, and a bunch of people like that, John Gray. We were down in Mexico renting a house on a beach uh, in August, and there was a lightning bolt that struck. I swear to God, it was not 10 feet away from where I was standing. I was inside. It was outside. But it was like, bam, 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 bam. It was like six or seven things. Hmm. It woke everyone in the house up. It shook the house, scared the hell out of my wife. She jumped out of bed. And I said, get back in bed. And... Um, and, and it was amazing. And I said, well, how does lightning work? And I just had, was holding that thought. So in last night, before I go to bed, I always read for about a half an hour or something uplifting. And he was saying that what happens is there's a charge on the earth. And this charge begins to move toward a central place. And as it builds up, it moves upward. This electrical charge, it actually attracts the charge that's building in the uh, atmosphere to strike it right there. Huh. So the idea, and he was talking about creativity, and how all these great breakthroughs, like, you know, um, the Keckley ring and all these things where people have these amazing ideas where Keckley discovered that benzene was a ring, and that's how they got the, the structure of that. And uh, all these amazing breakthroughs. When you study something really, really hard, you really, really put a lot of energy into it. And, and sometimes you, you get frustrated because you've been studying hard and you can't figure it out. And then all of a sudden, you give up. You say, well, screw it. Maybe I've wasted three years of my life trying to figure out this thing. And then what happens? But you've been building up a charge in your system saying, I want to know the answer to this. This is important to me. And at the same time, what we can call a higher power, God, energy, whatever, is also it's recognizing that. And when you get enough charge built up and then you let go of it so that your right hemisphere, your left hemisphere shuts up, that's the rational, logical mind, then what happens is you have a a flash, no, what's the word? Flash of insight, like mm -hmm. a flash of a, of a lightning bolt. You have a flash of insight. And what happens is all that preparation, the logical preparation, actually takes you to the place where you can let go of it, and then the other side, the more spiritual, gestalt part of the mind, um, the intuitive mind, can actually have a burst of insight that it creates a breakthrough. So literally, when you're studying, as you did for your book so intensely for a year, figuring out how do I do this, and you've been studying this for years, Phil, what happens is you're building up and you're starting to attract to you the resources, the opportunities, the people. I've had people be so obsessed with success. It's an honest God, true story. Very rational, scientific woman walked into a Barnes & Noble. She's walking down the aisle and my book fell off the shelf onto the floor. <laughs> she picked it up and she put it back and it fell off again. No. And then she's looking around like, is this candid camera? What's going on here? And so she figured she would buy the book. She eventually became one of my top trainers. Oh, and so, fantastic. But she was looking. She was invested, to use the name of your book. Yeah, uh -huh. she right? was tuned in to, to, yeah. to the possibility that something yeah. like that could be meaningful. And you're creating a field of consciousness through your intention that then you start creating it a vibration. This is the part that I would add that the most investors don't because they haven't studied the law of attraction, is that if you can affirm that I am wealthy or I, do, I am worth you know $10 million or I have a $100 million account or whatever your goal is, and then close your eyes and visualize what you would see in the outer world. Like when I was first starting this work, 
I was making $8,000 a year as a teacher in the inner city schools of Chicago. W. Clement Stone challenged me to set a goal to make $100,000. And I had no visible way to do that. I, that was like, are you kidding me? He said, I want to do it because it's so unbelievable. But if you'll do these two exercises, it'll happen, and then you'll believe this works because it'll be so gargantuan a response. So I did it, and I started visualizing what a $100,000-year lifestyle would be. I'd have these Navajo rugs on the floor. I'd have these big picture windows over the lake. I'd be driving a certain car, wearing certain clothes, going out for dinner, whatever. And I did not make $100,000 a year. I made $92,328, but I was not the least bit disappointed because <laughs> I had six times my income, you know, or whatever, 12 times my income. Uh, yeah, so it was like it was a huge, huge breakthrough for me. Then my wife said, do you think it'll work for a million? I said, sure. So we put a million dollar bill on the ceiling. We started visualizing that and I could show you a check for $1,138,325.68 that my publisher sent me the first, it wasn't the first, with the fourth chicken soup check I got in that year. We made $6 million in royalties. But this stuff works if you work it. Now, obviously you've got to do real world stuff like invest, you've right. got to take the risk. But this, this charges the system to attract to you the opportunities, the wisdom, the people like you and your courses and so forth that actually can help people achieve it. I went through that same thing, and, and I was told just make a promise to yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, so I wrote it on a card. I said, I'm going to make $1 million in five years. Mm -hmm. And I dated it, and I signed it. And then I kind of kept that floating around. This is 1980 to 85. Mm -hmm. And almost literally to the month, Mm -hmm. the, all the investing I did, did got liquid at 1.45 million, almost to the month, five years later. Yeah. It was just, I don't know, it, but I'm a believer, but I don't know wh why it works. What you just said is phenomenal. Well, three things happen. First of all, three things happen in your own brain that are important to understand. When you visualize something, you visualize you've got a million dollars worth of assets and you don't. Your brain is, is kind of like a person. I'm going to simplify this, but the person's going like, Hey, Phil, you're crazy, man. You don't have a million dollars. You got 150,000. What are you doing here? And, but you keep visualizing this. And finally, the brain goes, you know, Phil's not going to give this up. And this is, I hate the tension of the, what's real and what's visualized mm -hmm. here. We better figure out how to produce a million dollars so he'll stop doing this and let us rest, you know? So that's kind of metaphorically what goes on in the brain. We call it creating structural tension. When you go test drive a new car in the, the, the dealership and you get out into your old car, your old car was fine until you test drove the new car. <laughs> Now the dealer, by giving you the free test drive, has created structural tension, meaning your brain's going, I want that. And so whenever you experience a model home, uh, somebody, you, 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 your friend just remodels their kitchen and you go over and you go back to your old crappy kitchen, you know. Oh, totally. All of a sudden you're noticing all, all the things, things that aren't right. That you yeah. Like you weren't noticing it before. No. So we want to purposely use that thing that our brain does on purpose to create that tension. Once that tension is created, three things happen. Number one, you start perceiving things you never perceived before because you have a part of your reptilian brain called the uh, reticular activating system that filters out what it doesn't think is important. So right now, you and all the people listening to this are not aware of what they're feeling in their right foot. But as soon as I say right foot, can you feel it? Mm -hmm. So that information was streaming up your leg, up your spine, into your brain, but your reticular system was filtering it out because not important. So it's like uh, the gatekeeper at a, a gate at a state or the uh, you know switchboard operator at the White House. If I call Donald Trump, I'm probably not getting through, you know? doesn't know me. You might. I won't. No, well, but whatever. <laughs> Most of us wouldn't, right? You know, yeah. but if you're, you know, the, his lawyer, you're getting through. 
So we have this filter that does the same thing. We want to program the filter to get our name on the guest list so we get through when we call. So by visualizing this thing, it, the brain then goes, oh, anything that will help us achieve that, let it up into consciousness. So we start noticing books. Books fall off shelves. People are giving us articles. We sit down next to the person on the airplane who's actually the person that can solve our problem. We're at Starbucks. We turn around. We start talking. The guy's an investment advisor, or he's got a great stock offer for you, or he's got a company he's trying to sell. Whatever it is, you know, you meet your bride. But but you wouldn't. The other thing that happens, you start getting internal inspirations. Like you, I'm going to go to this Starbucks. I don't know why. I think I'm supposed to get off this exit. Go to that Starbucks. Howard Schultz, we're giving lots of free advertising here. So, <laughs> and here's another thing about asking. Do you know that Howard Schultz asked 242 banks to lend him money to start Starbucks before he got a yes? No. No, it's a true story, 242. But going back to the Starbucks thing, so I get off at this different exit that I normally do. I go to that Starbucks, and then I meet someone I should meet. Because think of your higher consciousness as a helicopter doing the traffic report in the morning. Do not go into 101 South. There's a big accident. Get off at you know Ventura Boulevard and take the whatever freeway. It can see where you can't see because it's higher up. So there's a part of your consciousness that once you put in these goals is aligned with universal intelligence, which can see what you can't see. That's why you start getting inspirations. Do this, start that company, call that person. And you don't know why you're calling that person. And you call your brother and you find out he just lost his job and he's looking for a job or he's looking to join your multi-level marketing company or in this case invest in, in you know what you're doing. The third thing that happens is you start to get motivated to do the thing that you're visualizing. Whatever needs to happen to make that happen, you start doing the thing you need to do. And um, you don't, you know, the fear starts to disappear more. And you find yourself raising your hand and putting down a check and go, did I just do that? <laughs> I remember when I wrote my first $100,000 check to charity because I'd sold a company for $43,000. And I wrote a check for $100,000 to the Pachamama Alliance, Lynn Twist, who you know. Yeah. And I was not the same person for about two weeks. What the hell did I just do? <laughs> <laughs> but it changed my comfort zone of how much philanthropy I could do. It changed my self-image of what was possible. Mm. And that's whenever you step out of your comfort zone, that's where the growth occurs. So you, you know, knew you wanted to do it, but it was still an uncomfortable experience. It was very uncomfortable. I remember sealing the envelope and putting it in the mail and going, ah. and yeah. then the next day when I didn't have $100,000, I could have spent a lot of it. So I was like, what did I just do? Yeah. And now I write, not every check is that big, but I write a lot of checks like that. I had that recently selling my first company that I bought, which was Whole Foods, and Amazon recently bought them. Mm -hmm. So I sold the company, and, um, and it was terrible. I had this horrible experience with it. I was so sad for about a week because I had fallen in love with this company and it, it was my first and I just was so connected to it and I had done everything in our practice that we talked about. And then it was just gone out of my life. Right. And I felt really, really sad, like I had lost something yeah. because I did. Well, yeah. And I, I, I'm connecting with your experience there as far as it was something I wanted to do. It was the right decision. Right. I knew that. Right. But it was still uncomfortable. Right. No, here's the deal. There's actually research that says even when you get your hair cut, you go through a minor grieving process. Oh, I hate getting my hair cut. Well, <laughs> when, you, when you trim your nails, when you give away anything, like, you know, I, my wife gives away half, half of her clothes that she buys, she gives away within a year or two to her nieces and her friends and stuff. And, um, and I die inside, like, because I, I know what they cost. <laughs> like, really? You're doing that? Um, but, you know, 
There is a they minor. They were meant to be permanent, Jack. I know that. I understand. They serve their purpose. I understand. We no. give gratitude. I do. They did serve their purpose, and give and, and and when you give stuff away, you create space for the new to come <laughs> in, just like your, your 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 Whole Foods stock it, or whatever. Part of what I think Danielle was going through in in having Whole Foods stock go away was that there was a really strong moral connection between her yeah. value set and that company sure. and the people who run it, and this is something that we're works we feel like there's the way the world works and and part of it is that most people 50 million Americans about um, save money for retirement mm -hmm. and then they hand it over through 401k plans IRAs and so on they hand it over to people who have the best intention to try to make them money and and, and build up their retirement portfolio but who invest essentially amorally yes they don't have a a particular ethical point of view about right. this company is better than that company. Yeah, and that doesn't mean they're doing bad things. Just no. to be clear, amoral just means they're not. They're not thinking of that thing. Moral purpose. Right. Right. So here's someone who, let's say, is really teaching their kids. Look, I don't want you to drink Coca-Cola. I don't have anything against Coca-Cola, Warren. I just wanted to say, Warren Buffett loves Coca-Cola. Drinks six or eight cans a day. And was challenged at the last big meeting. He's challenged every year on what it. What about your health? And what about that? What's that doing to the to the you know childhood obesity and right, right, diabetes? Right. And and he said, look, you know, it's I don't think that's an issue, and it's not in my value set, so I I buy yeah. it. If people are handing their money over to other people, and those people are voting for the companies of the future with that money, it turns out it's eighty five percent of the money in the stock market. Mm -hmm. It's almost all the money is coming from individuals who have certain values about what they want to see the world be, and the money's going to people who don't share those values, right. and are voting for CEOs who are paying themselves an insane fortune while they're laying off thousands of employees, right. stripping the company for their short-term gain. Right. Uh, Polluting not, the environment, all kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.